I want to dedicate this class to the uh, loving memory of my dear grandfather who passed away last week, Tzvi Hirsch Ben Chaim Yishayo Akohen, that his, uh, his, his memory should be for a blessing and the Torah that we're studying together should indeed be in, in good merit for his neshama. So I want to begin with a, with a comment on the idea of minhagim, on Jewish customs. So there are different layers of Jewish practice. There are laws that are of biblical origin. There are decrees that are of rabbinic origin. And then there is the wonderful category of Jewish practice that's known as minhag, custom. And those are things that don't have any real scriptural source, not even rabbinic legislation, but it's something that over the years Jews have accepted upon themselves to practice and to uphold. Unless we think that a minhag, that a custom, is maybe not so important, maybe it's, you know, it's secondary, it's not essential, Chazal, our sages, tell us again and again and again how powerful and how important minhagim, our customs are. Minhag Yisrael Torahi. It says that a Jewish custom is akin to Torah itself. So we have to be very, very respectful and very um, attentive to classic Jewish customs, especially if they are widespread customs. So I want to focus today on two customs relating to the festival of Shavuot. Number one, there's a custom to stay up all night and study Torah. We know this as uh, some have the custom to have Torah classes and lectures. Some study specifically from a series of texts that are part of a booklet that we know as, that's, been, that's become known as Tikkun Leil Shavuos. So, <coughs> but the custom is to stay up all, uh, at night. And although maybe in years past, this was a very, maybe more of a, um, uh, an exclusive custom to certain communities, today, nowadays, many Jewish communities um, have this custom of staying up at least some part of the night to study Torah. The question is, where does this come from? Where does this custom come from? It's not in the Torah. It's not rabbinic legislation. Where does it come from? So one of the famous sources of this custom is based on the Gemara that tells us the Talmud shares that it was the morning of the giving of the Torah and Hashem, God Almighty, was ready to give the Jewish people the Torah. Lo and behold, the Jewish people weren't anywhere to be found. Where were they? They were sleeping. The Talmud says, the sleep this time of year is sweet. The weather was nice. The mosquitoes weren't biting. And so the Jews slept in late. So God tells Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, go around to the tents and wake everybody up because I'm ready to give them the Torah. So that's what happened that first Time that the, well, when the Torah was given, that first Shavuot, if you will, 3,333 years ago. And this is why the custom has evolved, the custom has come up that we study Torah the night, we stay up all night, the night of Shavuot, the night before, you know, the night of Shavuot, studying Torah, so that it's a tikkun, it's a, it's, it repairs, it fixes the mistake, if you will, of the Jews sleeping in that first time. It's a, nice, it's a nice story. It's a nice origin story. It's nice to have an origin story for a minhag. But if we're being intellectually honest, it begs a lot of questions. Primarily, the question that it begs is, how in the world did this actually happen? How could the Jews have slept in the morning of Shavuos and not woken up? So tell, the, the Gemara says, the Talmud says that the sleep is nice, it was comfortable, the mosquitoes weren't biting. They were counting, the Jews were counting every single day from the time they left Egypt. They were counting day one, day two, day three, day four. They knew that on the 50th day they were going to get the Torah. They knew it. They had, they, they had it marked every single day, which is one of the reasons why we count the Omer in commemoration of the count up to the giving of the Torah that happened that first year after the Exodus. How can we conceive that a people that were so looking forward to receiving the Torah at Sinai would somehow be able to sleep in? You and I know that if we're anticipating something, you know, even Lahavdil, not, not the receiving of the Torah from God at Sinai, but Lahavdil, a flight that we have in the morning, 
Yeah, you have a, uh, a 6 a.m. flight. You know you have to get to the airport at 4.30. You don't have to leave to the airport at 4 o'clock. So already the whole night you're staying up or you're concerned as you sleep, you're already you're, the whole night you're thinking about making the flight. How can we conceive that the Jews were so callous, so cold to the experience that was going to happen that next day that they went to sleep at night, didn't set any alarm clocks, right? No safeguards, no alarm clocks, nothing. And that's it. They just went to sleep. You're going to tell me they didn't have alarm clocks then. True. But no one stayed up. No one was, uh, was, was concerned about staying up or anticipating. How could anyone have slept anticipating such a great moment? That's question number one. Let's shift minhagim. Let's shift customs and talk about another custom on Shavuos. And that is the custom of eating a dairy meal. Typically, Shabbos and Yom Tif, when it comes to Shabbos and the festivals, we typically have a fleshic meal. We typically have a meat meal. Now, you don't have to have meat if someone's a vegetarian and doesn't, or can't eat meat or doesn't like meat. Of course, there's a, there's a, you don't have to. You don't have to harm yourself. Nonetheless, traditionally, the custom is to have a meat meal on Shabbos and the festivals. When it comes to Shavuos, however, we have another custom. We have an, another minhag. And the minhag is that we have specifically a dairy meal. Blintzes and cheesecake and ice cream for the kids or for the adults. Right? We have dairy meal. And, of course, many have a dairy meal and they wait a little bit and then followed by the meat meal for the holiday. What is the source, what is the rationale for the, for the dairy meal? So I want to share with you one of the classic explanations for eating dairy on Shavuos offered by the Mishnah Brura. Um, it looks like I might be able to share my screen. Let's see. Oh, no, I can't. But hopefully soon I'll get permission to do that. And I want to share with you a PDF that has a few texts. And uh, the text is going to share one of the rationales, one of the classic explanations for why we eat dairy on Shavuos. This is coming from the Mishnah Brura, Arachaim. And he writes as follows. <coughs> I once heard a good reason in the name of a great scholar for why we eat dairy on Shavuos. After the Jews received the Torah at Sinai and returned to their homes, they were not able to eat anything else other than dairy. For they had just received the laws of kosher, and they now needed special knives and vessels to slaughter, cook, cleanse, and salt meat in order for it to be kosher. And they did not yet have these utensils available for their old kitchenware was not kosher. Therefore, they all chose to eat dairy, and we do, and we do the same on Shavuos to commemorate this. The Mishnah Brewer says, very classic answer, beautiful answer as to why the dairy on Shavuos. Because at that first Shavuos, at the, at, at, on the day that the Torah was given, 3,333 years ago, they got the laws of kashrus, the laws of kosher. And when it comes to kosher meat, it's very complicated to prepare kosher meat. You have to have the right knife, you have to have the right animal, you have to have the right shechita, you have to have the right salting and soaking and soaking and salting and prepare correctly, and you have to have the right utensils to do all of the above. And kosher pots and pans if you want to cook it. Very involved, or at least it took a few days to get set up. So on that day, the day Torah was given, there practically wasn't the opportunity to eat meat. And so that first Shavuos, they ate only dairy. They were just physically unable to prepare kosher meat, so they prepared dairy instead. As an aside, Rabbi Shlomo Yosef Zevin the great scholar of the last century who wrote Hamod and Ba'alacha, he asks a question on the Mishnah Brura. He wonders why the Mishnah Brura has to talk about the fact that they weren't able to have meat because they just got the laws of Kashos and they didn't have the knives, they didn't have the pots and pans. He wonders, according to all of the opinions in Chazal, according to all of the opinions, the Torah was given on Shabbos. The original Shavuos was on a Shabbos. So if it's on Shabbos that they got the Torah and the laws of kosher, so they couldn't, you can't shecht an animal, you can't slaughter an animal on Shabbos, you can't uh, kill an animal on Shabbos, so they couldn't prepare kosher meat anyway, even if they had a knife, even if they had, theoretically, new kalim, new vessels to cook in, they still couldn't prepare 
uh, an animal uh, to prepare meat on, on that day, on the t- day Torah was given, because it was Shabbos. And they couldn't eat any of the meat that they had prior because, of course, it wasn't done in a kosher fashion because they had not yet received the laws. So anyway, as an aside, he asked the question on the Mishnah Brewer, why do you have to go to the place of saying that they didn't have the, ca- the vessels and the knife and, and the time to do it? You could say simply it was Shabbos, and, uh, and, and, and thus they weren't able to prepare meat. Either way, the bottom line is that very first Shavuos in history, in Jewish history, they ate dairy. So to commemorate that, we eat dairy. I want to ask you a question on this minhag as well. Sounds beautiful. But you know what? The Jews probably also wore sandals in the desert. So why don't we have a minhag that every Shavuos we go to Shul wearing sandals? Why not put up a tent and sleep in a tent the night of Shavuos because, or oh, you stay up, but whatever, but be in a tent because they were in tents. Why are we focusing on the menu? Now, we know, of course, Jews are very gastronomically inclined, and we love our food, and we have food, special foods for every Yom Tif. Rosh Hashanah, apples and honey, Yom Kippur, we don't eat. And then we break the fast with bagels and lox and cream cheese, or whatever your favorite uh, breakfast is. On <coughs> Sukkot, it's where we don't eat or where we could eat, etc., etc. So it seems like Judaism is a little bit obsessed with food, and so it makes sense that we would have a minog that's associated with food if we didn't have another one for Shavuos. Nonetheless, we could ask the question, just because they ate dairy out of necessity that first time, so we need to commemorate it. What's the deeper meaning behind this? There has to be a deeper meaning. This will form our second question. So to recap, we have two minhagim and two questions. Two Jewish customs for the holiday and two questions. Custom number one, to stay up all night because the Jews slept in. Our question on that is, how could they have slept in given the intensity of the day and the anticipation that they had for it? Custom number two is the custom to eat dairy on the holiday of Shavuos because that's what they ate back then. And, and our second, our question on that minog is, just because they ate dairy, we have to eat dairy. What's the deeper significance? Take these two customs and these two questions, if you will, and put them aside for a moment. I want to focus on another story. And this story is going to go back, all the way back to Avram Avinu, Abraham, our forefather, and his tent in ancient Mesopotamia, or an ancient, uh, I guess at that point it was an ancient, ancient Israel. So he has his tent set up. And at, at, this is shortly after his, three days after his bris milah, his circumcision, at the ripe old age of 99. Hashem sends three angels to Avram. Three angels, one was to heal him, one was to bring him the good news about the birth of a son, one was to save Lot, and one was from Sodom's destruction, and one was to overturn the cities of Sodom and Amorah and the other cities. Sodom and Gomorrah. So I want to focus, we're talking about food anyway, I want to focus on the menu. What did Avram Avinu, what did Abraham, our forefather, serve the angels? Once again, I direct you to the screen where I will share the, the text with you. This is from Bereshus, Genesis chapter 18, text number 2. And he lifted, this is referring to Avram, and he lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, three men, angels appearing as men, were standing beside him, and he saw, and he ran toward them from the entrance of the tent, and he prostrated himself to the ground. He bowed down. He was so excited to see guests. And he said, Avram said to them, My lords, if only I found favor in your eyes, please do not pass on from beside your servant. Don't go anywhere. Stay here. Please let a little water be taken and bathe your feet and recline under the tree. And I will take a morsel of bread and sustain your hearts. Afterwards you shall pass on because you have passed by your servant. In other words, he said to them, stay a while. I want to give you food and drink and a place to rest. And then you can continue your travels. And they said, so shall, so shall you do as you have spoken. Agreed. We'll stay. Verse 6. And Abraham hastened to the tent to Sarah, and he said to his wife, Hasten three, saw meal and fine flour, knead and make cakes. And to the cattle did Abraham run, and he took a calf, tender and good, and he gave it to the youth, and he hastened to prepare it. Verse 8, and I underlined it for a reason. And he took cream and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he placed them before them, and he was standing over them under the tree, and they ate. 
What does Avram serve the angels? Essentially, he serves them a cheeseburger and a cappuccino. This is what Avram Avinu, our forefather Abraham, serves the angels. Malachim, angels are sent to him. Yes, they appeared as, you know, as, uh, as nomads or passers-by. But what's on the menu in Avram's tent? Abraham and Sarah's bed and breakfast. What are they serving this morning? Oh, you get a calf. You get some tongue. You get some cheese and butter and some milk. Shkoyach, wonderful. Very good. A very kosher diet, right? A very kosher menu. We say sarcastically, what, what kind of business is this? Avram is giving them... And, and, and they ate it. Now the question, did they eat it? Did they pretend to eat it? The Torah says simply that they ate it. You can't take a verse out of its simple meaning. So they ate it. <coughs> they ate meat and milk. In fact, now we could focus our question on Avram, but maybe that's for another class. But right now I want to focus on the angels. Because this actually played a huge role in the giving of the tablets of the luchos to the Jewish people. Let me explain. Fast forward through history, several hundred years after Avram, Abraham, and the angels had their lunch together that fateful day. It's in the times of Moses, shortly after the Exodus. The Torah, revelation at Sinai, which we commemorate on Shavuot happens. And then following that, 40 days later, shortly thereafter, the Jews commit the grave sin of worshiping the golden calf. Moses immediately springs to action as the great defender of the Jewish people, and he advocates on their behalf to the point that he tells God Almighty, forgive the people, and if not, erase me from your Torah, which you have written. The chutzpah, it's a beautiful chutzpah. It's a loving chutzpah. Moshe says, Moses says to God Almighty, I know you love the people and all you need is a reminder, so to speak. You need someone to go to bat for them. I will be that person. Forgive them. If not, I don't want any part of this law that doesn't allow for second chances. Very important message for all of us in our lives. But then Moses gets called up to the mountain, top of the mountain, to Shemaim, to heaven to receive the second tablets. And it's at that point that the angels, the celestial angels, protest. And they said to God, are you kidding me? I'm paraphrasing. Are you kidding me? You, you know what happened last time you, ga <coughs> you gave the tablets? The, Moses came down the mountain with the tablets, the first set of tablets. He saw the golden calf and he smashed them and broke them to smithereens. And now you want to give them, you want to give Moses a second set of tablets. You haven't learned your lesson. What's going on here? This is what the answer, listen to the answer and the response that was given to the angels. Once again, I will share my screen with you and this text. This is going to be text number four from the Midrash Tillam. When Moses ascended to heaven to receive the second tablets, Pam Shnia in the Hebrew, second tablets, the ministering angel said, Master of the universe, just yesterday, so to speak, the Jews worshipped idolatry, the golden calf, and it is written in these tablets, you shall have no other gods besides me. Which means, why are you giving them the tablets, a second set of tablets? God replied to them, to the angels, when you descended to visit Abraham, did you not eat meat and milk together? As it is written, he took cream and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he placed it before them, and they ate. However, when a Jewish child returns home from school and his mother offers him, theoretically, bread and meat and milk to eat, he says to her, today my, teacher taught, today my teacher taught me that it says in the Torah, you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. In other words, you angels, you're, you're posturing as high and mighty creatures, infallible creatures that do everything right. Are you kidding me, says God? You yourselves ate meat and milk, Basavachalov. You ate meat and milk together. Even a, a little Jewish child, even a child knows that they mustn't eat meat and milk together. The angels had no response, says the Medrash. And at that exact moment, God told Moses, Ksav lecha sadvar inscribe these words for yourself because they have nothing to say 
Those second tablets put them back in production. The angels tried to stop the production, and God says to the angels, are you kidding me? Right? Are you kidding me? Not a chance. Continue the production. You angels have nothing to talk about when you yourselves ate meat and milk. And even a child knows that that is forbidden. It's such a powerful moment. This meal, this epic meal in Abraham's tent is so powerful that indeed it stands for us for generations. Take a look at text number 5 from Exodus chapter 34. The Torah says such a beautiful interpretation of the Das Kalim Balatosus, which we'll get to in a moment, but first the verse. Here is verse 26 and 27 of chapter 34 of Exodus, of Shmos. It says, The choicest of the first of your soil you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. Right? Bikurim, the first of the, the, first of the fruits, bring to God. And then it says, Lo You shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. The prohibition of meat and milk. And then the very next verse says, The Lord said to Moses, Inscribe these words for yourself. For because of these words I have formed a covenant with you and with Israel. And many commentaries believe that this is a, a general statement about Torah, the Ten Commandments. But according to one commentary, it re, it's referring to specifically the words of do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Write those words for all generations because that is what forms the covenant with me and the Jewish people. Take a look at back at text number three. This is Das Zakanim, Mibali Atosvos. They write, commenting on Vayer, on, on the story with Avram and the angels. He, Abraham, took cream milk and the meat that he had prepared. Take a look at the commentary. This teaches us that Abraham fed them meat and milk together. When God wanted to give Israel the Torah, the angels objected, saying, Give your glory, the Torah, to the heavens. God then rebuffed them, saying, It is written in the Torah that one may not eat meat cooked in milk. And yet when you, you angels, descended to visit Abraham, you ate meat and milk as it is written. He took cream, milk, and, and the meat. Immediately the angels acquiesced to God. This is what is meant in Parshas Kisisa, which we have in, in Source 5, which we just read. Because of these words, I have formed the covenant with you and with Israel. These words refer to the words written immediately prior. You shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Essentially, because of the prohibition of meat and milk, that is what helped the Torah be given to the Jewish people because had the angels not had that mark on their, on their resume, perhaps their complaint would have been listened to. So where does this leave us? This leaves us with a wonderful tale spanning centuries. A tale of angels, three angels, visiting Abraham's tent, having a meal of meat and milk, and that being used against the angels when the angels tried to prevent and block the Torah from being given to the Jewish people, or the second set of tablets, to be given to the Jewish people, that is the rejoinder, that's the response. Angels, you're going to present yourself as, as all high and mighty and virtuous. You guys ate meat and milk together. And thus, as we say today, they were canceled. The angels were canceled. They were, their, their, their claim was, was removed. I have now a question on this story. If you thought the questions were done, we have one more question. And that is, what kind of answer is that? We call this, in modern terminology, an ad hominem attack. When somebody has a good, a good claim, a good, a good argument, and instead of dealing with the substance of the argument, you go on an attack of that person's credibility and record. What kind? And, that's, and who's modeling this behavior? In other words, not focusing on substance, but attacking the character, character assassination. Who's modeling this behavior? None other than God Almighty. It's a pella, it's a wonder. The angels say to God, you really want to give Torah to the Jewish people after they've, they've committed idolatry? And Hashem says to them, who are you to talk when you violated your own when you violated Torah law as well, talk about misdirection. Talk about avoiding the direct challenge. Hashem is not, God is not addressing the, the claim or the complaint of the angels. What he's saying is, how dare you speak when you have this on, on, on your, uh, in your past. Number one, 
the, the question remains. The question of the angels is not answered. And number two, is this how we, is this how we engage in, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a question that has, a, that has a basis? By dismissing the question based on the source of where the question is coming from. It doesn't seem to be right. It doesn't seem to be intellectually or spiritually honest. And the question is, how, how, does, this, how does this happen? And how do we, studying this for so many years, not have these questions? Anyway, that's another question. But all right, we'll, we'll leave that last one aside. So again, just to summarize, I quoted th- two minhagim, for, two customs for Shavuos, and a little bit of the origin story about how the Jews finally got the, the second set of tablets. And on each idea, each of these three points, we have a question. Number one, the Jews slept in. We stay up all night. How could they have slept in? The Jews ate dairy that first Shavuos, so we eat dairy. Who cares? It's, it seems incidental that they ate dairy. Why are we commemorating that? And number three, the Torah was given, the tablets were given to us because the angels violated the prohibition of meat and milk. <coughs> that seems to be very, um, very indirect. Uh, sorry, that seems to be avoiding their question. But really, I have a stronger question on that story. Because when you look at the verses, take a closer look, you soon realize that they actually did not violate Jewish law whatsoever. And I'll share my screen once again. I'll share the source. We can look at it together. And I want to draw your attention to the verse. Verse 8, which is underlined, and now I'm highlighting it so that it's a double measure of focus here. And he took cream and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he placed them before them. The Torah specifies of the, or, the order of the meal. First, it's cream and milk, and then it's the calf. First, dairy, and then meat. If you know a thing or two about Jewish law and about the laws of kosher and meat and milk specifically, you know that you can eat dairy before eating meat, and you don't have to wait. Just to clean out your mouth, we have a source to show that in a moment. But I want to formulate a question here. The question is, they actually, if you look at the verses, they didn't do anything wrong. They ate milk and then meat. So the whole, not only is God leveling an ad hominem attack against the angels and not dealing with their claim, but the attack seems to not even be justified. The claim was, the attack was, you guys ate meat and milk. And the answer is, they didn't. They ate milk and then meat. It's in the Torah itself. And by the way, cream and milk and the calf. There's, a, there's another word here that seems to be extra in the, in the, in the, uh, in the, in the verse. It says, And the calf that he had prepared or he made. And according to some commentaries, what this means is, what does it mean that he made or prepared? It means that the meal unfolded. You go to a nice restaurant, they don't give you all the food at once. They give you an appetizer and then they give you another appetizer and then they give you, you know, other things. And then you build up to the entree. And according to the com- some commentaries, the, the word Asher Asa, the two words Asher Asa that he had prepared, refers to the fact that, that Abraham served his guests, the, these three angels, in a very um, respectful way. Slowly, one dish, the next dish, the next dish, which once again proves our point, that he first gave them the cream and milk, and then the calf, and one thing came after the other with a little bit of liquid in between, and the meal was a progressive meal. When I say progressive, I mean it progressed. One, the next, the next item, etc. Put all these pieces together, and it turns out they didn't do anything wrong. I said before, we, ha- we could have a question on, on Avram Avinu himself, on Abraham. How did he serve them non-kosher? The answer is he didn't. He first gave them the milchik, and then he gave them the fleshik. First gave them the dairy, and then the meat. No problem. How do we know this is not a problem? Take a look at the Code of Jewish Law. Text number 6, Yoradeh, chapter 89. If one first ate meat, he cannot subsequently eat cheese until he waits six hours. And even if he waited the proper amount of time, if he still has meat stuck between his teeth, he must first remove it. However, this is the, the, the relevant point for our conversation right now. 
after one eats cheese or dairy, he can immediately eat meat as long as he checks to ensure that there is no cheese still stuck to them, to the, to the mouth, to the teeth, and he cleans and rinses maybe his hands, and he cleans and rinses his mouth. So either way, what the prohibition of meat and milk is eating them together or first eating meat and then eating, eating, eating uh, dairy. But if one first eats dairy, one can immediately eat meat. Now, many have the custom of waiting a half an hour or an hour, but nonetheless, according to pure halacha, one is able to eat meat immediately after eating dairy. Which... <laughs> blows up the entire conversation. Avram Avinu, Abraham, our forefather, didn't do anything wrong. The angels didn't do anything wrong. They had dairy, they had meat. Fast forward a few hundred years. The angels say, why are you giving the Torah to the Jewish people? They just served idols. And God says, you ate meat and milk. That's an awkward conversation. Because the response is uh, from the back. You know, the little angel in the back says, if I recall correctly, it's even in your own Torah, there was first milk and then meat, no problem. So in addition to the fact that God is not dealing with the issue at hand, kind of misdirecting the conversation, even the accusation doesn't seem to be founded. My friends, this is a pretty ironclad, it's a pretty, in my opinion, it's a pretty ironclad question. Ironclad question. They didn't eat meat and milk together. They didn't do anything wrong. They didn't violate halacha. How are they being slammed when it comes to the question of who should get the Torah? So sometimes, the only way to understand something in Torah is by looking a little, a little deeper. Looking at the neshama, at the soul of Torah. You find, most of the time, you can find answers in Nigla, in the revealed parts of Torah. But sometimes you have to look deeper to find an answer even on a level of pshat, even on a simple level. This is one of those cases. They ate chalav and then basar. They didn't eat meat and milk together. And yet they're being accused of doing exactly that. We need to look a little bit deeper. And what we're going to look deeper at is the very reason why you can first eat milk and then meat pretty much right away but you cannot first eat meat and then milk let me be very clear what i'm what i'm saying to understand the story with avram and the angels which will then help us understand the story with moses and the tablets and the angels which will then help us understand the reason why we eat dairy on shavuos and we stay up all night because they slept in. We need to first understand why is there a difference when it comes to meat and milk, which one you ate first. Why? So let's understand this, apinigla, according to the halachic parameters, and then we're going to explore this based on Kabbalah, based on Jewish spiritual thought, mystical thought. But first, the straightforward explanation. Take a look at what the Shach writes, the Sifse Kohen, on Yoridea chapter 89. This is source number 8. The Torah writes that after meat, one cannot eat dairy for six hours. Why? Because meat leaves a fatty residue in the throat and palate for an extended amount of time. As opposed to dairy. Maimonides says that the reason is because of the meat lodged between his teeth. The Shach quotes two sources, two Two rationales for why is it that there's a longer break, there's a longer span of time that's needed after meat as opposed to after dairy. In other words, the question, the exact question that we're focusing on, why does it make a difference which one you're eating first? You have to wait after meat, you have to wait six hours. After milk, you can have meat right away. What's the, what's the chill? What's the difference? Because when it comes to meat, the tour writes that meat leaves a fatty residue in the mouth. You know, when it comes to like oil and water, you can't just rinse it away. So it leaves a fatty residue. It takes a good six hours to work through. That's the tour. Rambam says, Maimonides says, it, meat gets stuck between your teeth. 
So you have to wait six hours for everything to kind of, again, work its way through. Either way, after meat, you have to wait six full hours, and then you can have dairy. But with dairy, it doesn't leave the fatty residue. It doesn't leave, you know, pieces of cheese between your teeth. There are hard cheeses, by the way, parenthetically, hard cheeses that also have the status of needing to wait a more extended amount of time after you eat those hard cheeses. But in general, you drink a glass of milk. It's not fatty on that level of meat. It doesn't get stuck between your teeth like meat. You can have meat, clean your mouth, etc., and you can have meat pretty much right away. That's the simple explanation. When I say simple, I don't mean, you know, I'm not, uh, that, that's the straightforward understanding of the halacha. But as I said before, we're going to look today at the soul of the halacha. Everything has body and soul, beginning with you and I. You and I are not just a, a physical body. You and I have an neshama. You and I have a soul. Everything in this world, everything in existence has a guf and a neshama has a body and a soul. The same thing is true with Torah. The same thing is true with, is true with halacha, Jewish law. Every single halacha, every single law has a guf, has a body. In other words, a logical, rational, practical explanation. And it also has an neshama, a soul. So let's talk about the soul of meat and milk. Meat, milk is compared, milk is compared to chesed, which is the attribute of kindness and love. And meat is likened to gvura, which is the attribute of severity, harshness, boundaries. Let me explain for a moment. Kabbalah speaks of sfirot or sfiros, Different energies that exist in the universe, different energies that exist within the human soul. And the first two primary emotional energies that exist within you and I and within the cosmic structure of the universe is chesed and gavura. Let's talk about this on a, on a human level. Chesed is your capacity to give and to love and to extend to others. Gavura is your capacity to withhold, to create boundaries and rules. Both are necessary. Both are 100% necessary. In a relationship, you need to have love and you need to have boundaries. Let's talk about parenting for a moment. Do you need chesed? Of course you need chesed. You have to love your kids. You have to love your kids and give to your kids and be generous to your kids. At the same time, if the child asks for a knife, or something else that's dangerous, you better, you better hope that a parent has the ability to exercise some gavura, some restraint, to say, not this. I love you, but I'm not going to give this to you. I wanna, I'm going to use my hand. If you look at my hand, I'll show you kind of the modalities of chesed and gavura. Very simple. Chesed is an open hand, right? A giving hand. And gavura is a closed hand, a withholding hand. Chesed is giving. Gavura is withholding. Milk, chalav, dairy is likened to chesed, and basar, meat, is likened to gvura. Why? We see this in the nature. So the nature of, 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 of chalav, of milk, is, well, on many different levels. Number one, it's a liquid, right? Milk is a liquid, and a liquid by nature is coalescing. Liquid, solids are distinct one from the other. Liquid is, it's, uh, it's all connected which is the idea of giving and, and attaching and connecting. Also, chalav is white, which is symbolic of the, of the energy of chesed, this white, this pure giving. Also, milk, we know that the more, that, that milk, on a, on a biological level, milk is given from mother to child. It's the ultimate act of chesed. It's the ultimate act of love. It's an act of giving, and it's a, such an act of giving that it says more than the, the young wants to nurse the mother wants to give the milk. It's a generosity. Milk is symbolic of a generosity that is unparalleled. And the more you give, the more you get. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful, lesson, beautiful lessons within milk. The bottom line is chalav, milk, and dairy in general is associated with chesed giving. What about gvura? What, what about meat? Meat is red, especially nowadays. 
you know, everyone's sous vide and cooking and, the, the, you know, the, you get the nice raw red meat. So meat is red by its nature. Red, it's tough. It's hard. It's not like dairy, just soft and liquidy. It's, it's tough, especially if you do cook it a little bit longer. So meat is symbolic of gvura, severity. So you have chalav and basar. You have meat, you have milk and meat. Milk is chesed, is love, is kindness. And basar, meat is gvura severi. Now, both are holy, both are necessary. Like I said a few moments ago, in every relationship, you have to have chesed, the giving, the openness, the generosity, the love. You also have to have gvura, the withholding, the boundaries, the rules. Any parent that's ever told their child, please come home, you can go out, but come home by by 8 o'clock or by 9 o'clock, exercise gvura. Every even in a spousal relationship, which is certainly predicated on love and closeness, it's healthy to have boundaries as well, which in other terms might be called respect. There's love and respect, which parenthetically is one of the, this is parenthetical, but I think it's important to mention, one of the reasons why the students of Rabbi Akiva passed away. They loved, but they didn't have respect for each other. Right? The question is asked, how could they pass away? Because they didn't, the Talmud says, they didn't, they didn't show honor to each other. At the same time, the Rabbi Kiva is the one who taught, this is that loving your fellow is the foundational idea of Torah. How could his students not show covet to each other, not show honor to each other? And that's why they perished during Sefira Saomer, this time period, between Pesach, Passover, and Shavuos. It's because they loved, but they didn't respect. They had, they had. But kavod they didn't have. Because love and respect are two things, two different realities. You can love, but you know what happens sometimes when you love? You can swallow the other person and not give them their own space. Love could mean, I love you like me, I want you to look like me. And if you're not like me, that means that you're not yet where you need to be. I don't respect you, unless you're like me. Even when it comes to opinions. If someone shares your opinion, you say, I love what you're saying. If someone disagrees with your opinion, hopefully you say, I respect your opinion. You don't respect your opinion. You love your opinion. You respect a different opinion. Love is joining and respect is boundaries. Chesed is connection and gvura is boundaries. Both are necessary. You need milk, chesed, love, kindness, generosity, you also need gvura, boundaries, respect, and withholding. But, as the Kabbalists and Hasidic masters say, although both are necessary and both are holy, if you have to err on one side or the other, always err on the side of chesed. If you have to, if you can't find the perfect balance, if the needle has to tip one direction or the other, should it be in more love or more withholding? Our chachamim, our sages, the scholars tell us that we should always err on the side of more chesed. In fact, the more love we have, the more the gevura, the restraint, and the rules and the boundaries will be seen by the other as coming from a place of love. If your child senses that it's because you love them that you don't want them to touch the knife or the fire or to stay out late or etc., 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 then they can learn to love and respect those rules. If they sense that it's coming from a place of harshness, that the foundation is not love, therefore rules. But the foundation is gvura, is I'm going to impose my will, and I'm going to say no because I want to say no. If it's coming from a place of harshness, that's going to break the relationship. That breaks relationships. When rules are there for the sake of rules, it destroys the respect, it destroys the love. When rules are predicated on love, now we can talk. That's what the Torah says. You shall surely rebuke your fellow. But in the very same lines it says, you shall love your fellows yourself. Why? 
Because any rebuke must come be predicated on the foundation of love. Otherwise, it's an act of self-indulgence and self-righteousness. And it's not going to have an effect on the other. Person wants to feel that they're mightier, that they are, when I say mightier, that they're spiritually, righteously superior to the other. Go tell the other person off from a place of, how dare you? But if you really want to have an impact, you have to really love the person. When the other person hears that you have a critique from a place of love, they're going to listen. If they hear critique from a place of judgment, get out of here. <laughs> I don't want to hear you judge me. Who wants to hear that? So, when there's a foundation of chesed, of love, you can have gvura and gvura will be healthy. If the foundation is gvura, severity, that's an unhealthy foundation. Your love then is manipulative. Don't need to mention the way of abuse, which is abuse, and then sprinkle in enough love to, uh, to, to keep the other person confused or believing that there's really love there. Horrifically and unfortunately, that's the way it works. So when there's a foundation of chesed, of love, you can have healthy gvura mixed in. When you have a foundation of gvura, be very careful with the love that follows. Be very careful with the love that follows. This explains, Alpi Kabbalah, according to spiritual, Jewish spiritual thought, why you can have meat, sorry, why you can have dairy before meat right away, but not the opposite. The, the insight that I'm sharing with you right now comes from the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, the author of the Mechaber, the Shulchan Harav, the founder of the Chabad Hasidic movement. He was born in 1745, passed away in 1812. He shares this insight. It is incredible. Again, this is not a halachic understanding. This is a mystical understanding of the halacha, the soul of the law. He says like this, when you ingest, when you digest dairy, you have the foundation is chesed. Then you can put in your gvur on top of that, and it's fine. Because the overwhelming modality is love. The rules are all a part of the love. It all works together. But when you first eat meat, which is the modality of gvura, which is severity and restraint and harshness, and then you want to eat meat, eat milk right after, you want to put in chesed, treif, that's not kosher. Let your anger pass. Give yourself six hours before you try a closeness. And I mean, this is not even Kabbalah at this point. This is any book on parenting or discipline. In the moment of anger, please don't try to communicate. Now is not the time to show how much you love and care about the other person because you're angry. So wait, let that pass, digest that, let it go through the system, and now you want to love. I should probably mention, any communication with a child should be about education, chinuch, which is predicated on love. So you want to now educate and correct your child because you love them? Perfect. Let the anger, let the, let the meat work its way through the system, digest the, the gvura, and now we can talk about the chalaf. That's the deeper explanation of the law of why you can have milk and then meat right after, pretty much, but not the other way around. Because chesed, your foundation is chesed, is love, and then gvura rules, that works. But the other way around, it's distorted. But why does it work like this? Why does it depend on what's on the bottom? What you digest first. This touches on what? One more halachic idea that's going to intertwine with the Kabbalah. Stay with me. There's a question in halacha before the question. When you have two entities, something, even let's say meat and milk, if they're, both, if they're both cold, a cold piece of meat and a cold piece of milk that touch each other, they don't, they, they, the, 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 the flavors don't intertwine magically with each other. You just maybe clean off the surface edges that touched and you're good to go. Right? So if you take, uh, I'm not recommending this, Trust me. But if, if a piece of, a block of, uh, of cheese touches a block of meat, okay, where they touched 
make sure to, to get rid of, to cut off, but the rest didn't become magically mixed together. But if both items are hot, the heat makes it travel from one to the other and it, it, everything becomes meat and milk together and the whole thing has to be thrown out. Treif, not kosher. But what happens if one of the items is hot and the other one is cold, <laughs> right? Jews, they like to ask these questions, right? What happens if one is hot and one is cold? And imagine if one is on the bottom and one falls into it on top. Take a look at what halacha says. This will blow your mind. Take a look at the halacha. This comes from the Gemara. Tractate Psachim, the Talmud. Babylonian Talmud, this is, tech, this is source number seven. If something hot falls into something hot, all agree that both become prohibited. Cold into cold, all agree that both remain permissible. However, hot into cold, or vice versa, the cold item falls into the hot one, now you have a dispute amongst the Amaraim, amongst, amongst the Talmudic sages. Rav says that the upper one always overpowers. And Shmuel says that the lower one always overpowers. So Rav says, and I, I want to make sure these words come through, Ilagavar. Rav said, two opinions, Rav, that was his name. That's what he was known as, Rav and Shmuel. They were like Hill and Shammai sparring partners. They were sparring partners in, in, in Talmud. Rav and Shmuel. Rav says, Ilagavar, you go by the status of the upper item. And Shmuel says, Tatagavar, you go by the bottom one. I'll give you a simple example. Actually, well, the, 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 the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law is going to give us the example right here. Um, right here, Yoridea chapter 91. And we'll see what the halacha is. The halacha is like Shmuel, which is underlined. Tata Gavar, the, the lower one always overpowers. But let's, let's read the scenario through. This will give us a practical scenario, and we'll see how the halacha plays out. If cold meat falls into hot milk, or cold milk falls onto hot meat, in other words, if the hot thing is on the bottom, whether it's milk or meat, but the hot item is on the bottom, and the top one is cold, both become fully prohibited. Why? Because the heat of the lower food always overpowers and heats up the coldness of the top food. So you go by the status of the lower item in, your, in the top and bottom combo, you go by the, stat, the heat status of the bottom item. If the bottom item is hot, it makes everything hot, and then the whole thing is not kosher. But conversely, if hot milk falls onto cold meat, or hot meat falls onto cold milk, the cold is on the bottom, one merely peels off the surface of the meat and the rest is kosher. Because it has the status of cold, and thus you just, you're just, you just peel, you just cut off the surface of the meat, and it's kosher. Essentially, and this is, we're doing this quickly for the interest of time, but it's a powerful halacha. The question, the, the halacha is like shmuel, which it normally is not, by the way, but the halacha here is like shmuel, tata govar, you go by the, the heat status of the bottom uh, item in this combo, in this, in this mixture. So if the bottom is cold, whether, it doesn't matter if it's meat or milk. It doesn't matter which one it is. If it's cold and the hot other item falls onto it, the whole mixture has the status of cold and just, I mean the milk, you can't cut off the surface of the milk. So you cut off the surface of the meat and the rest of the meat is kosher. But if the bottom item, whether it's the milk or the meat, is, is hot, then the whole thing becomes hot. And thus, the whole thing becomes treif, not kosher. Asur, prohibited. So, getting back to our Kabbalistic understanding of the halacha, the same applies in the stomach. Tata gavar. The bottom one overwhelms. So, if you first digest dairy, which is chesed, if your first approach is love, tata gavar, that's going to be the overwhelming, the bottom one overpowers, the overwhelming energy is what's on the bottom, which is chesed then you could have meat right away, no, no problem. But if the first thing you put into your stomach is meat, that's on the bottom. And now you want to put in chesed on top, and now you want to put in milk on top. Tata gavar, your gvura, your severity, your harshness is going to taint. It's going to, what's the word I'm looking for? It's going to, um, it's going to taint, it's going to disfigure, it's going to, it's going to corrupt the chesed, the love that you're trying, it's going to make this a non-teachable moment if the, if the foundation is 
Gvura. Why do you go by foundation? Tatagavar. And now you have all the answers to the questions. Because in this, because why is the halacha tatagavar like Shmuel? Why is the there's a hot and a cold? So why do we go by the bottom? According to Kabbalah, according to the Alter Rebbe, why? Because in the struggle between heaven and earth for Torah, who prevailed? Tatagavar. The lower realm, we prevailed. The angels wanted to block Torah being given below. The angel says, said to Nahot Chalashamayim, let your glory remain above. Don't give the Luchos, don't give the Torah to, the, to human beings of flesh and blood. Look at them, they're corrupted, they're corruptible. Leave it here. They wanted to say, Ilogavar, that the top should reign supreme. The higher in the, in, the, in the fight, in the struggle between heaven and earth, they wanted heaven to prevail. What actually prevailed? Earth. The lower realm prevailed. Our realm prevailed. We got the Torah. It's not in Torah. Torah is not in heaven, the Talmud famously declares in a dispute. Torah is here. And that's why, on a deeper level, Tata Gavar. Why is it that the halacha is like Shmuel? Why is the law like Shmuel that the bottom in the mixture overwhelms the top? Because the Torah was given below. The below, the lower realm, the lower space is what is the most dominant. And so Hashem, God Almighty, turns to the angels and He says to them, You want the Torah above? That means that you're paskening like Rav. You're, you're ruling that Elah Gavar. Well, then you violated Jewish law because first you ate milk and then you ate meat. First you had chesed and then you had gvura. According to your own rationale, that's trafe because although the foundation below is chesed, is kindness, right, when Abraham gave them the meal, but according to your rationale that Torah should be above, then you go by what's above. And if you first digest milk and then you have meat, that means that your meat is gavar, is, um, is gavar overwhelms the bottom, and that means that your entire eating experience was a distortion of the chesed, it was a distortion of the milk. You had the meat, gavura, overpowering and overwhelming the chesed of the milk, and that is not kosher. In other words, Hashem, God, was not catching them in some sort of ad hominem attack, he was not catching them on a technicality that didn't exist because they did everything fine. He was addressing their very argument. Your argument is that Torah should be above. If that's the case, then you look at what's above in that gastronomical mixture. And what's above is Gevura, and that's not kosher. By your own admission, the fact that you did eat first milk and then meat means that you conceded for that moment without even realizing. Tata Gavre. You conceded. That what, what, what is, where is it to be found below? That that's where the magic happens. You yourselves, by your very own actions, eating that meal, vayochelu, testified, tata gavar, the bottom is where it counts. And that's why you didn't do anything wrong, but your claim the Torah should be above is evaporated. It was not an ad hominem attack. It was a direct address of their claim the Torah should remain above. Above, you yourselves conceded, it belongs below. This is why we eat milchiks on Shavuos followed by fleshiks. This is why we have first a dairy meal and, a mil- and, and then a meat meal. Because every year on Shavuos we declare that the reason why we can come home from Shul, eat cheesecake, and then 30 minutes later, an hour later, have brisket is because Tatogavar, because Hashem gave the Torah here. That's why we can eat those two meals on Shavuos. That's why we can have a dairy meal followed by a meat meal because Torah belongs right here in this world, not above. And this is what happened 3,333 years ago when the Jews slept in. They thought they were meant to have a spiritual experience, an unconscious experience to receive the Torah. And God says, I want you to wake up. I want you to be fully aware 
I want you to be fully present because Torah doesn't belong in Himmel. Torah doesn't belong in the dream state of reality. Torah belongs awake. They didn't go to sleep and sleep in by accident. They intentionally slept in because they wanted to receive Torah in a heightened spiritual state. And Hashem says, I don't want to give you the Torah in a heightened spiritual state. I want to give you the Torah as you are because Torah doesn't belong in heaven. It belongs with you and with human beings as they are. So in conclusion, what is the Kabbalah of cheesecake? What is the Kabbalah of dairy on Shavuos? What is the Kabbalah of staying up all night Shavuos because they slept in? It all shares the same message. That our job is not to escape. Our job is not to run away. Our job is not to look at this world as broken and beyond repair and can't wait till we're out of here. Our job is to be here in the here and now with open eyes and transform this world into a holy space. The angels that came to Abraham, that, that, for that meal, at a certain point in that meal, they turned to him and said, where is Sarah, your wife? And he says to her, she's in the tent. And the mystics say, what was the question and what was the answer? They were asking, Abraham, we heard about you in heaven, how, how, how powerful you are, but we came here on earth and you're a, you're a chef. You're running a bed and breakfast. Where's the holiness? Where's the ruchnia? Where's the spirituality? Here's a guy who knows how to throw together a meal. And they said, well, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe in heaven, the light that we see coming from your tent is from, from Sarah. He says, no, you're not going to see it either. She's in the tent. In other words, you're not, what you want to see, you're not going to find. What is holiness here? Somebody's hungry, you give them something to eat. When somebody is crying, you give them a shoulder to cry on. When somebody needs something, you're there for them, whether it's spiritually or whether it's physically. And not on your terms, but on their terms. That's what Torah was given to accomplish. Torah was given to you and I right here to make a difference right here. Not to escape, not to transcend, but to live a good life, a holy life in the here and now in a practical way. May we take this inspiration into the holiday, into Shavuos, and may this inspire us to truly integrate the Torah's incredible wisdom and the Torah's expectations of us into our practical day-to-day -day lives to live a bit of a better life, attuned to God's will, and make this world a home for Hashem. Thank you very much for joining me today for this uh, exploration. I hope that it's been meaningful to you.